Welcome to Saltier Politics. We have quite an episode for you this week. I'm really excited because we talk a lot of mob. We um, had Ellie Honegan, have Ellie Honegan, who is um, the f- a former assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, um, the Justice Department. It's really a great episode, and, and it's rare that we are able to talk about so many different things with somebody who's an expert in so many different things. Time flew by. It really did, yeah. I mean, it was an unbelievable discussion, and if you are a fan of The Sopranos and or interested in Whitey Bulger and or interested in Robert Mueller and or interested in uh, law and crime and mob and Bruce Springsteen. (laughs) In the words of Paul Manafort, bada-bing, bada-boom. Um, welcome, Ellie Honig, CNN legal analyst, former federal and state prosecutor, used to work at the Southern District of New York, which um, is kind of the crown jewel of the federal prosecution business. And uh, you're now working at Rutgers University and at Lowenstein Sandler. Um, let's start with the fact that it has now um, been a while since the election, and yet, for some reason, we've heard nothing from Robert Mueller. What do you think that's about? Uh, so everyone's sort of going nuts asking that question. There's a lot of tea leaf reading going on. Why- what does this adjournment mean? What does that adjournment mean? What does this signal mean? I, we've all been sort of at the ready every day since the election, ready for the next round of indictments to drop. It could mean a couple of things. It could just mean Mueller's just not ready. And I think we know Mueller just does things when he's damn well ready and not when anyone tells him to. It could be that the uh, Whitaker uh, factor is playing in here because you have a brand new AG as of the day after the election who now sits atop the Mueller investigation. So they're certain things, if, if you look at the regs, not to get overly legalistic, but they have to go through him. So Whitaker may have said, um, let, me, let me get my bearings here. Let me read up on the file before we start dropping indictments. Or he could be saying no to things that Mueller wants to do. And how much is, are, is the train of motion? I know there's a lot, we can get into Whitaker in a second, but I know there's a lot of concern by people um, out there that Whitaker is going to shut the whole thing down. But it sounds like, and you used to work in the Southern District yep. of New York, um, as an AUSA, so you can talk about this assistant U.S. attorney. Uh, how much of the things that have already been set in motion over the last year, year and a half, out of Whitaker's hands? I think the reason he's there is quite clear. He, he is underqualified uh, and lower on the totem pole of DOJ than a lot of other people. I think there's, it, it was conspicuous that Trump picked him. I think the reason is very clear because of the tirades he's gone on about the Mueller uh, investigation. Um, so... That said, I don't think the plan here is let's put in Whitaker and he'll completely shut this down. I think it's let's put in Whitaker. He can moderate it. He can keep an eye on it. Well, definitely on that plane, I have a question for you about, so Robert Mueller and his new court filing concerning Roger Stone's associate, Andrew Miller, testifying before grand jury. Mueller stated that Whitaker's appointment, quote, had no effect on this case. Two, Two points. Do you think this shows that Mueller has found a way for Whitaker to fall in line? Or do you think Mueller thinks he can win a battle against Whitaker? The question is, what in that Andrew Miller case in the D.C. Circuit, is was uh, Mueller's appointment back in 2017 legitimate or not? And the D.C. Circuit asked, well, how does it make a difference now that Whitaker's in charge? It doesn't. The question okay. is, who was in charge back then? I don't, I don't know if Mueller has forced Whitaker to fall in line or vice versa. Um, my hope as a prosecutor and kind of a purist, I guess, is that, is that they find a happy medium where they have a real discussion, should we be issuing this subpoena? Should we be bringing this charge? The, the problem is gonna happen when Mueller comes out on yes and Whitaker comes out on no. Technically, the way that gets resolved is Whitaker has the power. 
he can squash something. He then has to ultimately, down the line, report that to Congress. And so that becomes more relevant now that, that the Democrats have taken over the House. So now, look, I don't know if Mueller feels strongly enough, we could see resignations, we could see all manner of sort of escape hatches being used. But have, uh, the Southern District to me is interesting because I've always heard um, and, and mercifully have had little to do <laughs> <laughs> with the federal justice system, but um, it's always been apparent from everybody that I've spoken to, including people in your position, that the Southern District is very independent and that they're kind of insulated from politics. And Jeff Berman, who is now the U.S. Attorney um, for the Southern District, is a Trump appointee, mm -hmm. but nevertheless um, presides over an office that has shown to be its own kind of microcosm of a Justice Department. Um, first of all, having worked there, is that true? And secondly, what would you expect if the Southern District got wind of the fact that they're being told by Maine Justice, by, by um, Matt Whitaker and others in, in the Justice Department to tone it down or to not continue with an investigation that's pretty far down the road? What would you expect to see out of the Southern District, sure. out of those professionals at the U.S. Attorney's Office? So the Southern District is, we, you know, the joke is the sovereign district of New York. Right. We are famously independent, famously pleased with ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, We think we're the best, just ask us. Mm -hmm. Um, and there is historical independence there. That said, Southern District is still part of the United States Department of Justice. There are still things that you have to get approval up the line for. As, as independent-spirited as that office is, we can't, we can't just make up our own rules. We can't just disregard DOJ protocols. And really, that independence is a function largely of the leadership. I was lucky to work there under, uh, under appointees of both Republicans and Democrats who were very independent, Preet Bharara, Mike Garcia, Dave Kelly. Um, and, and who played very little politics and had as little to do with possi as possible with the Department of Justice. Um, I'm not sure, I don't know Jeffrey Berman well enough. I believe he's recused himself off, off he the has, Cohen matter. Right. So the question is, what's the leadership gonna do? Um, and I can't say I know those people now, things turn over so quickly there well enough, but ultimately the Southern District can't defect. The Southern District can't say we disregard you, DOJ, uh, and we're gonna do our own thing. Would they go public ever, or is that something that certainly that office would never do? It would be out of character. Right. Uh, Mueller's shop is, has been incredibly airtight, hasn't leaked at all. The Southern District, I think, is pretty close second in terms of not leaking. That's a, that's a strong ethic there. I, I don't know anyone who ever leaked out of there. So Mueller has cooperation with Cohen, Manafort, Rick Gates, Michael Flynn. Who do you guys think is the biggest threat? You tell me. Uh, well, Cohen, not necessarily yet. Cohen's oh. still in progress. But of those, uh, Manafort by far. Manafort sort of hits on a lot of different areas. Like if you could do a Venn diagram, he hits all the big ones, right? He was front and center on the campaign in the key. You know, Trump always says, oh, he was barely my, barely involved. He was the campaign manager, right. chairman. For a while. For, for, I think it was five months. Right. Um, he has all these strange financial and political ties to Russia, to the Ukraine. That's what his trial was about. He was in the Trump Tower meeting. He was right in the mix when that meeting was being planned and coming about. Um, and he has communications with all the other shady figures. So I think Manafort has sort of, when you're looking at cooperators, you want someone who has access, right? He's inner, inner circle and someone who has sort of a breadth of knowledge and exposure, right? What you want in a cooperator is someone who can take you inside a corrupt organization and sort of walk you through it. And I think if he cooperates, he's best positioned to, to do real damage. Why have we heard nothing, speaking of Michael Flynn, we've heard nothing from, from Flynn in... I really, since the indictment, except for the fact that he's still running around doing um, fundraisers for Republican candidates, which I think is kind of strange for somebody who's potentially cooperating and under indictment. So he's obviously not been disavowed by right. the Trump White House if he's still running around doing political events for Trump allies. 
On the other hand, he's clearly cooperating because they keep postponing his sentencing date. So what do you make of that? I don't know. It's a weird one. Um, You do typically want to push off your your cooperator sentencing date until they're done. Until uh, not just they're done, but until all their cooperation is done. I've had cooperators that that we pushed off sentencing five, six years, literally, because we kept making cases of him. Obviously, that's not going to fly here. It is an unusual case. I don't know what the, the fact that he's still sort of on the circuit is very strange. If I if I had a cooperator like him, I'd tell him, "You're out. You're not interacting with any of these folks anymore. You're not speaking with any of these people anymore. You got to find something else to do." Um, but they do keep putting off his sentencing. I think he's sort of faded into the role of, of a secondary cooperator. I think if there are going to be charges, they're going to be based off Manafort, maybe Cohen if he comes in, and then Flynn. You have as maybe if you need a supporting witness for something. I don't know if that's because. They don't fully trust him. I don't know if that's because they just think they don't need him anymore because they have better witnesses. It's always sort of a complicated calculus when you're juggling multiple cooperators. It could be, potentially, and and people speculate about this. I find it hard to believe that they might indict Donald Trump Jr., but anything's possible. I mean, is that, first of all, is that something that's a potential possibility based on purely the fact that he that he perjured himself before Congress yeah um, is that something that people would do for somebody in his position I mean is that, without anything else you, you would definitely think twice and think hard because it's the president's son but there's no legal or technical immunity or coverage or special treatment because he's the president's son the president does have some special legal protections that other people don't have executive privilege prohibition on direct indict well not prohibition but the the, the tendency towards not indicting but Junior, um, I think, could be in trouble. I do think he, he's potentially in the hot seat. I think, first of all, potentially for lying to Congress, as you said. Um, and, and second of all, I still think that Trump Tower meeting in June of 2016, which Manafort was in. Remember, the participants on the Trump side was, was Trump Jr., Manafort, and Jared Kushner. Um, I still think that meeting itself could give rise to, rise to conspiracy liability for those who were in on it. So it's possible. I guarantee you Mueller w- would would only indict if he felt like he had a headshot. What about subpoena power? Because now that Adam Schiff is ahead of the House Intel Committee, uh, what what does that mean for Trump? Yeah, so the, the fact that the House flipped over to the Democrats I think is important, and I think it's it's an important backstop for Mueller, but, but it's highly imperfect. Um, I think people need to have the expectations sort of properly aligned. Yes, the Democrats can now issue subpoenas, can now hold hearings, but there's a couple big, big, things that, that, that sort of leave that a little bit short. Number one, the House can't charge someone criminal, right? So there's kind of, you can do investigations, but to what end? Um, the House also, the, the subpoena power is not as strong as law enforcement subpoena power. If the House issues a subpoena and let's say the White House resists it or claims a privilege, then you get bogged down in these long legal proceedings um, and it, it could really stall out quickly. So the other thing, the other thing I would say is, I think the Democrats in the House, they're excited. They have this new power, but they need to be careful not to step on the toes of anything that the real prosecutors are doing. Right? I've heard things like we're going to we're going to call all these witnesses. We're going to get to the bottom of Russian interference. If I'm Mueller, I'm thinking, please don't. Let me do my thing. Let me talk to these witnesses. I may have things that I need to keep confidential. I may have witnesses that I don't want out there testifying publicly before I put them in the grand jury or on the stand. So I think there needs to be a little bit of caution. But isn't that a battle that's going to be brewing? I mean, you just laid this out, and it seems mm-hmm. to me politically it's going to be a battle because the House may say, the House Democrats may say, okay, great, we trust you, Robert Mueller, but we don't trust Matt Whitaker. We don't know what kind of constraints he's put on you. It may be that you're not going to be allowed to get to the bottom of everything that you should get to the bottom of. So we're going to take over this part of the investigation. Don't you? I mean, that's, that's setting it up to be 
a yeah, complete a, cluster. I mean, yeah, it, it's a delicate dance there. And I, I think one thing that, that, that the House Dems would be wise to do is let this play out for a little bit. See what happens. See if Mueller um, resigns, right? And then they, that's an obvious sign they right. need to, to, to spring into action. So it's a dance and it's a delicate one. Um, before we get to what I think is so fascinating, which is your prosecution of the guy that killed Whitey Bulger, um, I just want to say we on this podcast always drink. And for some reason, every guest we've had um, is the bane of my existence because they like either cheap beer like Steve Kornacki or they all like brown alcohol. Um, and you are making us drink Jack and Ginger, which I don't think I... How did that become your drink? Yeah, how did that I, become your drink? I'm a terrible drinker in that I barely do it. And when I, when I do drink, I'm not that good at it. But it's simple. And uh, when my friends and I play cards, it's just it's what guys do. You just, right. I don't know, someone has a bottle of Jack. You grab a thing of ginger ale from, from the bodega. I feel like it. Jack's a guy drink. That's true. I don't know many women who drink Jack. That's I like, like the Jack and honey. Oh, uh, yeah, that's horrible. I don't know what that I, is. That's disgusting. That's I mean, disgusting. It's, like, it's syrup. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's repulsive. All right. But I just want to say it is night. It is dark out. It is definitely dark out, okay. but I still stand by the fact that Jack and Ginger is, although I'm downing it because I just spent two hours in traffic and we're about to talk <laughs> Whitey Bulger, my favorite topic. Um, I still, mm, I don't know. One day somebody's going to show up with vodka or some, something, <laughs> something near and dear to my Russian heart. Um, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about the fact that... Um, you prosecuted the guy that allegedly murdered Whitey Bulger. When I was in Boston, Billy Bulger, Whitey Bulger's brother, was sort of the king of Boston politics. He was the Senate president, um, or the Senate majority leader, as they call it in Massachusetts, I think. And he had kind of a really big political fall because of the fact that people thought he protected his brother Whitey, who um, was this legend um, in Southie, which is the southern end of Boston. And I guess in, in addition to that, you said... Um, uh, you were talking about people cooperating with the feds before, a, a big cooperator, right, with, with law enforcement, which protected yeah. him for many years, ironically enough. He was an informant, enough. yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, tell us about the guy that killed him, because I <laughs> thought you had such an interesting point about why, but you know this guy because you spent a long time prosecuting. I tried him uh, yeah. for, for five murders, attempted murders, right. and, con and conspiracies. So Photius Gius, Freddie, Gius um, was a, a hitman for the Genovese family. He was not made, right? He's not Italian. He's, uh, you he, have to be Italian to be made? Yes, you do. You can't even be like the consigliere? You can't no, be like it's not no, like a godfather like, thing? Right, yeah. uh, Tom Hagen. Tom Hagen? No, 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 no. All right. Um, but the Giuses were, I think, Greek. Right. Um, but they were really, really tough guys. With The, the morning that it came out that Freddie Gius had, had allegedly killed Whitey Bulger, my phone blew up from friends from Southern District saying, wasn't this your guy? And I, I thought... My first thought was, oh my God, I can't believe my guy killed Whitey Bulger. My second thought was, of course it was Freddie Gius. Right. Why? Um, because he was, he was really bloodthirsty. Um, so he was, we ended up prosecuting a whole bunch of guys from the Genovese family. We tried three defendants together. It was Artie Nigro, who was the boss of the Genovese family, and then Freddie and his brother Ty. Actually, Ty was a little even more dangerous than Freddie. Mm -hmm. But that was the trial. And... The case involved, the main case we charged, they had gunned down a, a captain, a high-ranking person, um, in Springfield, Massachusetts, sort of broad daylight. The GS boys had found some crazy guy to shoot him, shot him a bunch of times, and killed him. When we did the case, someone else cooperated and said, you know, we also killed someone else and buried him in the woods. And the FBI then took this cooperator out of jail for the day, and, and the cooperator showed him, uh, walked him into the woods in a town called Agawam, Massachusetts, 
And the cooperator said, somewhere around here, FBI dug, and there he was, Gary Westerman. He'd been missing for seven years. They killed him. They bashed him over the head with a shovel. They dumped him in the grave. And seven years later, we dug him up. Um, and so we tried Artie Nigrove. Wait, and the best part is yep. I read that you still found, or the feds found him still wearing his ski mask. That he yeah. Had. That's crazy. He had his Nike, his Nikes intact and his ski mask. The way they lured him into the woods is they told, he was a bad guy too. And they said, we're going to rob this drug dealer. And in order to get into his house, we got to cut through the woods here. They get into the woods, they turn on him. They actually, a, a little detail that makes these cases interesting. Uh, the Giuses started shooting at him and they said, the bullets bounced off his head. He wasn't dying. And then they, that's why they bashed him over the head with the shovel to finish him off. And sure enough, when we went out in the woods, there were shell casings from the exact right type of gun right there. Seven years later, uh, the, the forensics showed that he'd been bashed over the head, that he'd been shot but not penetrated through the skull. So it, it lined up. Per I got to stand in front of the jury in closing argument and say, you know, there's this expression, does he know where the bodies are buried? And in normal life, that means, does he know what he's talking about? Does he really have the goods? In this case, the cooperator literally knew where the body was buried. So that was a, a very fun case to try. We convicted all three defendants on both of those murders. There was another attempted murder where they shot someone in the Bronx nine times and he lived. Uh, and wow. testified for us, but he didn't know who did it. He just said, two tall white guys. That's the genius boys. Uh, and they all got life sentences. And I thought that would be the last I'd ever hear of Freddie Gius uh, until he killed Whitey Bulger. Now, you're right. I, I am 99.9% .9 sure Freddie Gius had never met Whitey Bulger, had anything to do with him until that day. Freddie Gius was operating in Springfield, but he was really a New York extension of the Genovese family. Bulger was a, was a Boston mobster. Um, totally different ages, no reason to think they would have ever come in contact. But look, immediately I said, I know what I know why Freddie did this. Number one, Freddie just, just loves the killing. They killed almost for sport. They killed for reputation. We showed the evidence in the case was when they killed Westerman, the guy they buried in the woods, it was because they felt like they weren't getting enough respect. And so we said, we gotta, come on, we gotta, we gotta kill somebody. He was kind of their friend. Um, but they wanted to raise their, their rep. The second thing is Freddie hates cooperators. Um, I mean, we got him with cooperators. His former close friends turned and testified for us. And Bulger, like you said, was an informant. So I think he was sending a message. Do you think it, there's a possibility that this was coming down from on high or you think he just did it? I don't know. I, I put, I'll put it this way. The only consequences to Freddie really are they could move him to a slightly higher uh, security classification and he could get charged again, but he's already got a life sentence. He's not getting put to death. The right. feds haven't put anyone to death since 2003. And, and the way, knowing Freddie, he would gladly take a slightly different security classification to be a prison legend. Did, did you ever worry about your safety doing this, these trials? No, because it, it wasn't good for business for them to come after me. Look, if the rule was if you kill the prosecutor, the case gets dismissed, I'd be dead a hundred times over. But if they ever tried something on me, the case doesn't go away. They just plug in the next Southern District guy. And by the way, all of federal law enforcement will come down on your head. So no one ever tried anything. I wasn't scared. Um, I always kept it business. It was never personal. There were some prosecutors like to growl at people or, you know, I'm going to tear you apart. That wasn't, that wasn't my style. So. And did you ever think, was there ever any fear that this was going to potentially come down the pike? I mean, you're not prosecuting yeah. low-level drug dealers, right? You're prosecuting uh, later major, on. major mobsters. and Yeah, other later mobsters. on. The, no, not really. Not really. Um, Although I would put Freddie Gius, if you said, who do you not want to get locked in a room with for five minutes right. from the guys you prosecuted, Freddie and Ty Gius would be in that top five. And had he had a record before you got him or was he? Oh yeah, he'd been convicted. Not, not, no murders. Right. He'd been in and out. He, he had a troubled background, but um, nothing that ever kept him in for a long stretch until we got him. So 
everybody I know is completely fascinated by Whitey Bulger, and he's, again, um, I think it's the Jack Nicholson myth. I think he's just become such a mythical figure, right. and I think this Freddie Gius now for the rest of his life is going to be linked to that. It's almost like a Jack Ruby situation. Or yeah, I almost cringed yeah. when I saw it, and I wrote a piece about it for CNN, yeah. but I almost thought, ugh, like, I, I know Freddie's sitting in jail loving his clippings right now and, and, and loving the attention he's getting. All right. Here's a weird fact about you, which we also always ask, um, which speaking of as a federal prosecutor, this sounds super, super sketchy, but you changed your name twice, which again makes me wonder what you're hiding, what you're running from. <laughs> I, I legally changed my name twice. Okay. My, my marriage certificate, they made me put an AKA on there, which really made me feel like a criminal <laughs> defendant. Does your wife know this? That's kind of sketchy. Does. She okay. was a little taken aback. Um, oh, you didn't tell her until <laughs> no, she knew. <laughs> but but when we were sitting, honey, I've got something to tell you. I've been on the run for thirty years. <laughs> well, we were sitting there, and they said, what, "Have you ever been known by other names?" I right. said, "Yeah," and they said, "Well, you, you have to have an AKA on there." <laughs> Whoops. Uh, do you want the the quick version of it? I kind of want the interesting version of it. So my birth name was Eliezer okay. after my grandfather. Right. A little bit of a mouthful to call a little right. kids. So my parents called me Ellie. Right. Constantly confused for a girl. Right. Okay. Put in the girls' team, the girls' bunk at camp. I got a girls' soccer trophy, like with breasts mm -hmm. and stuff. <laughs> and so when I signed up to go to overnight camp, my dad, who's a lawyer, said, "Do you want to change it to to a definite guy's name just for signing up?" Right. And of course. At age 10, yes. So we legally changed it to Elliot, which no one really ever called me. Okay. And then, except at camp. Uh, and then years later, when I became a lawyer, I asked my mom, I said, can you go dig up that file? It's from when I was 10. And so she found it and it was like moldy. She FedExed it to me. And I went to the DC court where I was living at the time and changed it back to Eliezer. Um, so I went from Eliezer to Elliot back uh, to Eliezer, so. Oh, you're to, still Eliezer. Yeah, I'm back okay. to the original. What was the moment you decided to go back to the original? Uh, I don't know exactly. I think when I became a lawyer, I thought, oh, I can do this myself now. Okay. And by the way, when I got the old file from when we changed it to Elliot, my dad had made me write an affidavit to the court saying, basically, when you're I was 10? 10, I was 10, saying, um, I want to change my name because I don't want to get confused for a girl and I'm not a fugitive from the law or trying to evade civil process or something. That's like. My hilarious. dad's careful. That is Awesome. And that is so many years of therapy. They're going to have to work that out. And that's hilarious. <laughs> it made me stronger. Yeah, like of course. Of course. How did you end up doing organized crime? Is that something <laughs> you fell into or is that an interest of I, yours? Or I'm laughing that? because we once did a panel at the Southern District where all the bureau chiefs spoke to the new, new uh, prosecutors about why they went into their senior unit. And everyone had this inspiring stories or interesting stories. I wanted to go into securities because I've always been interested in banking and finance. I just basically said I thought it was cool. Yeah. Uh, I like the movies and stuff. Um, I, you know, I knew a lot of the people who were in there, but yeah, it, it seemed like a thrill, right? To, to go after real life mobsters. People say, was it like Goodfellas? Is it like Sopranos? A lot of times it's better. Um, and so I love the stories. I love the human drama of it. Uh, I love getting to sit down with someone who's, who, who used to be in the mob, who maybe has committed murders and done horrible things and ask them about their life. How did you get into this? Why did you do it? How do you feel about it now? So I, I think there's a, a sort of a human drama that's unique to organized crime and a storytelling piece of it that what, really attracted me. What's the most realistic mob movie? Is it oh, Goodfellas? Good is it Sopranos? Is it, I mean, Sopranos is not a movie, but what's the most realistic fictional depiction of the mob? Sopranos is really realistic because really? I think what The Sopranos shows is, is how stressful and frustrating it is for the guys who are involved in it, right? We have this glamorized view of the mob as it's all back rooms and cigar smoking and, and planning hits. But for real, I think if you watch The Sopranos, and I just rewatched a couple episodes recently, you see how frustrated and stressed they all are. And they're all fighting over the small, same pieces of the pie and the same, uh, the same rackets. 
Uh, and, I, and that's really true when you see um, how mobsters really operate. It's a grind. It really is a grind, almost like, like a lot of other professions. Yeah, as a, as a successful mobster, the successful organization, almost like a successful large enterprise yeah. of any kind. Yeah, I look at a lot of these guys, and I think that guy would have been successful if he was in, uh, on Wall Street. You know, he just happened to grow up in Bensonhurst or something. Right. Um, so, and of course we have our, our Jersey piece of it. We had, we had a guy who makes me think of Tony Soprano named Angelo Prisco who became the center of a New Jersey controversy. Um, we ended up trying him for murder too and convicting him. But the thing that's so Jersey about him is we had his driver wired up and there was a day when the driver had to drive Angelo from Fairlawn to Atlantic city, which Jersey geography, that's long. That's a long drive. Yeah. And Prisco took the whole time to give him mob 101. He goes, here's the five families. We're the Genovese family. He goes, <laughs> you're he like goes, taking notes. This oh, is fantastic. It's I like mean, a primer. It, the best part, uh, Angelo goes, look, we're the Genovese family. We're the smartest one. We don't talk on tape. We don't shoot our oh mouth off. <laughs> the reason the Gambinos got, got taken down was because John Gotti senior couldn't shut up and got caught on tape. And, That's I mean, awesome. As you're hearing this, what is the reaction in the room as you guys are listening? Well, we're not hearing it live, yeah. but, but the next day, uh, laughter, high five. <laughs> and how do you know when you're listening in? I've always yeah. wondered, the Sopranos kind of alluded to this in an episode, but as you're listening in um, on a call mm-hmm. and, and, or in a conversation, it has to only be relevant and germane to what you're looking into, right? If somebody's wife comes in, or, or how does that, how do you know when to turn off the mic? Right, so, so that applies to if you're on a phone wire, a right. wiretap. Right. Um, the agents get sort of trained on that. It's called minimizing. Mm-hmm. You just have to use your judgment. If the wife comes in and you start talking about the kid's soccer game, you have to minimize, meaning you have to turn it off, and then you can listen back in 30 seconds later and see if they've changed topics. But if someone's wearing a wire for you, um, it's not physically, right. a wi- I'm gesturing, it's not physically a wire mm-hmm. anymore, it's much more sophisticated. But then you can get, you can get everything. Um, you, can, you don't have to turn on and off because you have someone, the guy wearing the wire, who's consenting to it. So, gosh, I've listened to like eight hour long wiretaps where they're just sitting there watching two football games in a row and it's so tedious. You have to be the one to listen to it as the prosecutor no. or you have uh, yeah, an I mean, agent or somebody listening Good to agents it. will tell you what's on it, but, but sometimes they'll, they'll write um, conversation about extortion. And you'll go, yeah, but it's a six hour tape. Yeah. So I um, had some good interns who did that too. What's a, I hear the Italian mob kind of has a code of honor for lack of a better word. I'm sure it's sure. probably a really inappropriate word to use, but um, whereas like the Russian mob or the Yakuza or somebody, those guys are yeah. much more brutal. Like uh, the Russian mob, I think would not hesitate to kill you, the prosecutor or, or worse yeah. to dismember your entire family and leave you alive to suffer so, the consequences. So they all have codes, but of course the, the Italian mafia, Cosa Nostra, they'll yeah. tell you the rules are only the rules until they're not right. right. Well, we're not supposed to deal in drugs, but a lot of them do. Right. Right. Um, but yes, the, a lot of the newer and emerging organized crime groups are much more violent, much tougher. Um, and I'll give you an example. The Genovese family in another case I did wanted to do home invasions on people who kept cash in the house drug dealers or, or including um, the, the TV show Orange County Choppers. Remember that? Where they, right. they fix up motorcycles. Yep. So, so there was a rumor on the streets that they were keeping, and this is public, I'm not, that they were keeping cash from merchandise sales in their house. So cash businesses. But what the Genovese family did was they, they basically subcontracted those robberies to Albanian gangsters. You know, the Albanian gangsters, a couple of them flipped and they would say, yeah, because we're, we're tougher and we're, we're more willing to go in and, and uh, zip tie someone and beat them up. But these Albanian gangsters are scary. I had a couple that, that cooperated with me, and they used to laugh at the Italians. They're like, oh, these Italians, they got, they got no heart. I remember one, one of them said to me, they, these Italians got no heart. We'll, we'll, I'll fight 10 of them at once. <laughs> so uh, the new groups are a little tougher and a little scarier. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of, how did they emerge? I mean, there's a, there's a vacuum because the Italian mob in New York at least kind of yeah. got broken up. I mean, the, the Italian mob in New York is not all that violent anymore. Right. There hasn't been an agreed upon... 
There hasn't been a murder that I think we in law enforcement agree was a mob hit for, for several years now. But the Albanians, they're fighting for turf and, and they're breaking into new businesses, new neighborhoods, Russians, Albanians. Um, there's Asian gangs here in Manhattan, Chinatown. Um, and they tend to be a little, a little harder edged. Interesting. What's, what's the most bizarre front that you've seen for any of these gangs? Uh, front. Okay. So, uh, good question. Um, someone just reminded me of this this morning, but there was a Gambino family gangster who made a fortune off of the fruit importation business. So he controlled the docks, including Newark and Brooklyn. And he took a piece, I guess it's not exactly a front, but he took a piece of every fruit shipment. And these are these huge barges that come in from right. South America. Um, so he made, he, he, you know, he started off as a, as a, I think a Bensonhurst guy, but he ended up making a fortune off fruit importation. So it sounds not threatening, but you can make a fortune off it. Um, tell us your two truths and a lie. Ah. You're going to try to, you said you're a horrible liar. So why don't we not I look really at you? I really am. You can look at me. I wrote, okay. I wrote these down though, because okay. I, I need some cover here. Okay, okay. go ahead. Two truths and a lie. So I've done themes here. It's a New Jersey theme. I got it. I'm already way ahead of this. I can probably figure it out already. And it's a musical theme. I've All got right. a cover too. What kind of music? You'll see. All right. Okay. Number we one. I've gotten uh, I've gotten them all wrong, so I can only go up. <laughs> yeah, there. I think I think I'm pretty much I've, I've, I'm I'm in a good place. I think I've gotten most of them. <laughs> all right, right, you're confident. Go ahead. Number one, my first concert was in 1988 at the Atlantic City Steel Pier. It was the Beach Boys featuring special guest drummer John Stamos. Okay. Got it. Got it. Processed. Okay. Number two, in 1989, I went to a Springsteen concert at the Brendan Byrne Arena. I held up a sign saying, I know all the words to glory days. Clarence Clemens glanced at me. I thought they were going to do the thing where they pull me on stage. <laughs> like, Courtney, he, like Courtney Cox. Like Courtney Cox. I was ready to do my Courtney Cox right. thing, but they did not. Okay. And then number three was in 1995 when I was at Rutgers in New Brunswick. Um, I went to a Run DMC concert at the College Ave Gym, uh, but I only got in because I worked security. All right, I'm going to right away say that the Stamos thing has to be real because I'm thinking that Stamos became a big deal um, when he was on Full House, and you said this is 1980 or 89, right? 88? I think 87. 87, which I think Full House was already on, and I recall um, that he was playing with the Beach Boys at the time, so that stands to reason. I'm going to say the Run DMC thing is so preposterous that it has to be real. <laughs> And so the Clarence Clemens one, although it's good, has to be fake. Don't tell us yet, Emily. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I was born in 1990. Oh my god. So, so you never of, watched Full House. <laughs> well, I saw. I see the. I'm seeing the remake on Netflix. Uh, you are no longer 15, so that's not acceptable. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll get to that later. Fuller House. Just, yeah. Just checking it out. Uh, I felt like the second one was super specific. So I'm gonna go with Run DMC. Oh, good. I was worried you'd both get it. Springsteen is false. I knew it. I knew it. Yes. <laughs> Got it. I'm my track. I feel good. I just wanted track, to trick one of my you. Track, you know, my track record stands. Mine does too. <laughs> That's right. I have lost all of them. <laughs> I think I only, I don't remember. I think I'm pretty much good. Um, how, was, how was John Stamos? John Stamos was great. I, I, <laughs> Wait a second. This is 1987? Great. Something like that. Yeah, I was 12 or so. I All went, right, that's an acceptable I, age. I just remember I went with a friend of mine's parents took us. They had a house in Ocean City. And my friend who said, uh, Mom, Dad, just don't act embarrassing, right? And this, you know, the curtain goes up right. on the steel pier. 
And they both, both his parents just stood up and danced their faces <laughs> off for the next two hours. And John Stamos, people went crazy. John Stamos was John like Stamos and super his, hot back okay, then. Okay, back then. I don't mean hot. Back I mean hot like Back then, famous. John Stamos <laughs> continues to be super hot. I don't want to hear the back then. He had a mullet back then, so I'm not sure about the super yeah. hot part of him. But, um, and <laughs> what was up with working security for Run DMC? <laughs> was this during the Walk This Way period when they redid no, Walk This oh, Way? No, it was much later. I mean, okay. Walk This Way was like 85, 86. This is mm. when I was there, 94, 95. Oh, okay. So they played at the College Ave Gym. It was right. an unbelievable concert. They didn't even take breaks. They went song into song into song. Right. No breather. But, I w- but they had this thing where if you were involved in student government, which I was at the time, you could get in, but you had to, and I'm making air quotes, work security. So they gave you like a windbreaker and you had to stand there. You were supposed to stand with your back to the stage. So wait, you're, like, I'm going to stop someone from rushing the stage. <laughs> you, were, you, were ba- you were bouncing at a DNC. Yeah. On, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I know I look, I know I look it. But, you, yeah, I mean. Um, but I ended up trying to stand off to the side of the stage as much as possible. Could um, Run DMC not afford their own bouncers or their own security? I What's really don't know. I'm sure they had real security there. I, I would guess that part of the deal was Rutgers said we'll, we'll provide some student security as well. Well, but, and uh, you were toughened up by your name being Ellie at a are. young age. So to bring that full circle, you exactly right. You could take down anybody. <laughs> was this was there any part of the Springsteen story that's true? Did you actually ever go to a Springsteen concert? No, that was an amalgam of various things. I've probably fantasized. Oh yeah, I've been to Springsteen oh. concerts. Yeah, but I've never held up a sign or been close right. to getting motion out. You're a Jersey guy, and I think the answer is self-evident to any rational thinking person, okay. but um, Springsteen or Bon Jovi? Oh, gosh. Uh, Springsteen. I mean, I know. look, I like Bon Jovi, and, and we used to go, I used to go with my friends in D.C., and we would say, this is not an ironic trip, Just so don't come with us if you're planning to go ironically to Bon right. Jovi. Like, I'm slippery when wet. That is my, right. my core demo for that. Right. But there, there's no comparison. Springsteen has so much more uh, more to it and more depth. I got to tell you, I went to a Bon Jovi show, I want to say maybe about 15 years ago mm-hmm. at, um, at, at what was then, I think, Giants Stadium. I don't know what it's called yep. now. Um, and it was really bizarre because it was the early 2000s and it was like, the land that time forgot and all the people at the mall from 1986 <laughs> used to hang out with me at the Quaker Bridge Mall um, outside of Princeton, New Jersey. Apparently, I don't know where they got their perms that day, but it was like, yep. it was back during the slippery one. What it's like you got transformed back to New Jersey circa 1985, yeah. 1986. The problem with Bon Jovi, this may be blasphemy, but they, if you take away their top three or four or five songs, there's not a lot left. Springsteen, you could take away his top 20 songs. And He'd you still, still be amazing. I know. Yeah, so I th- that's. You know, I had this um, argument consistently with Phil Murphy, who's now the governor of New Jersey, who actually is very good friends with yeah. very good friends with Bon Jovi. And if you ask him, he'll say he prefers Bon Jovi. But he's well, originally from Massachusetts, so we'll, yeah, we'll cut I mean, him. We'll cut him a break. That says something about his New Jersey bona fides, right there. <laughs> I'm gonna not say anything about <laughs> that. Um, but I cannot thank you enough. I actually learned a tremendous amount. Um, I had no idea about the mob stuff. That's so fascinating. And I actually had no idea about most of the legal stuff to do with the subpoenas. I know. I'm really excited for my dad to listen to this because, so I'm Italian and my dad, uh, during one Christmas about 10 years ago, sat me down like, we're going to watch The Godfather together. <laughs> and so I think he's Was this like re- an Italian tradition? Like you guys- It this is. Because like he, he would always mention it and I'd be like, I don't know what you mean. And then he sat me down, we watched it, and I think he's going to so enjoy <laughs> your stories on this podcast. That's, yeah. Um, Will you come back if and Anytime. when there are massive indictments? We need, to, we need to work through somebody who actually knows what they're talking about. You know, I'm glad we finally got somebody to give us the skinny on it who doesn't. My who pleasure. does actually know how it works. Thank, Thank you, you for Eliana. having me. Thanks Thank so you. much. Bye. Emily, that was an absolutely fascinating episode, and I'm so grateful for Ellie to Ellie for coming in, or Elliot, as we learned today. 
um, which hopefully his wife um, will listen to this episode and, and maybe find out something that her husband she did not know before, um, including the fact that he had several aliases that he went do by. Do you have any aliases, AKA? I actually do have an alias. I didn't know that you have to put that in your marriage um, certificate. I do, because my, um, as you know, my real name is Julia, not Julie. Julie is just what I go by. But um, when I was born, because there's no J's in the Russian language, um, it's really Yulia. So although my legal name was changed to Julia, I was born Yulia, um, which I'm not sure people knew about. So there you go. How about you? I don't, but I actually remember learning that because on when we did the clapback, I thought someone had misspelled that, your name, and then you're like, no, no. No, 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 they didn't. Nope, that's definitely it. Um, what's making you salty this week? It actually has to do with that. It's poor grammar. It's when reading this uh, Donald Trump letter about Khashoggi, the White House official response, it, I wish the White House would hire my fifth grade grammar teacher because the exclamation points, the use of commas and run-on sentences is appalling. Well, you know that grammar was a big running theme um, when we worked on the clap back together and it continues to be, I don't understand, what is so hard about writing properly? Didn't, Trump say that he's going to, he's not using a lawyer. He's handwriting all of the, his answers for the Mueller, Mueller's questions. I can't wait. Can you oh, imagine if you're Robert Mueller and but, you're looking at this and if he really did handwrite this? Do you think Trump, however, will use that and say, oh, the comma is in the wrong place. You're misinterpreting it. He, he might. Uh, do you think it's also in 240 characters or less every answer? Or do you think he's capable of writing in complete paragraphs? I don't know. I, yeah. I'll tell you what's making me salty. Um, and it's been making me salty for a while. So I think um, maybe a couple of years ago, I think it was on Outnumbered, um, which is a show, as you know, that, that I used to do at Fox. Uh, I had said that I thought it was potentially time for Nancy Pelosi and the Democratic leadership of the House to step down. And I said this, I don't know, two years ago, three years ago. And I said this because I thought, okay, they've been around a long time, time to give somebody newer an opportunity. But I'll tell you what's making me salty. Um, tired of people going after Nancy Pelosi now. Aside from Donald Trump, she did more than anybody else to bring Democrats to the promised land this year and get them the majority. And um, she did it. She was at the helm. She was the team captain. She was the quarterback, however you want to phrase it. Um, that's the only football analogy you'll hear me use because I don't know anything about football. And the fact that Nancy Pelosi now is being challenged by these people um, after everything that she did to get the house back, kind of is offensive to me. And what I don't get is, I hate to get on the moral high horse about her being a woman, but why is it that um, nobody says this about Chuck Schumer or Mitch McConnell, who are probably around the same age that she is and have been around, and not so much for, for Schumer, but McConnell's been around a long time. Why is it that it's time for her to go? I mean, she did everything that Democrats could have asked her to do, which is she got them the majority. So I think let's calm down. Let's give Nancy Pelosi another term, see how she does, and then revisit this again in two years. But I, I really am getting a little annoyed with this anti-Nancy Pelosi sentiment. I think you're exactly right. I think it's about the vilification of woman. It's, it's easier to do that because she's this woman and you should just be like, oh, she's being mean. She's being evil. And Alexandra Petri, the Washington Post, who's great, and I highly recommend people read her. She's kind of does this satirical column, had this great column, which I'll, I'll tweet out. But she said basically that there's a sentiment, oh, I'm not anti-woman. I'm just anti this particular woman, Hillary Clinton, Nancy Pelosi. It's not, that I, it's not that I don't want powerful women in power. In fact, of course, I support women being powerful. 
just not this particular powerful woman. And they say that about every powerful woman that's in charge. It's kind of really annoying. And maybe if you stand back and take a look at it, really, it is a problem with the fact that they are women who are powerful and not just with them individually. So what is it about her that irritates people so much on both sides of the aisle, other than the fact that she is a woman? That's been going on since before the election and now shortly after the election, it continues. So I hope it stops. Cut it out. Leave Nancy Pelosi alone. All right. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next week. Sounds good.